Timothy. And if you're um, a parent, if you have kids through up through fifth grade and you'd like them to go to age-specific teaching, that's offered now, but of course, fine to have them stay in as well. Um, as you're turning there, just a, a quick comment. I know many of you will be traveling this week or may have family coming in uh, for Thanksgiving, and uh, we are sure thankful for you and the privilege of uh, locking arms and walking with Christ together. So uh, as I think about things, I'm personally thankful for uh, this uh, church, and many of you in particular are people that I'm just so full of praise and gratitude for. Thank you for your encouragement to me and my family. As you're turning to 1 Timothy 4, we'll be looking this morning at uh, verses 6 through 16, so the next section in the letter. Last uh, Sunday, we wrestled with a particularly heavy passage in which we saw that through the first five verses of 1 Timothy 4, we're told that God's people must reject demonic doctrines because they distort the character and the Word of God. Satan's strategy is to provoke people through deception into first doubting what God says. So doubting his character, doubting, doubting his words, and then that can lead into disbelief, and that dis disbelief can then lead into full-scale disobedience, even walking away from God. Often the most damning doctrines, the things that most provoke that kind of reaction, are ones that sound incredibly nice and kind and sweet. And they're deceptive because they're not whole-scale incorrect. They're partly truthful and partly not. And so in humility, we must be people who are vigilant, not arrogant, not judgmental, but be people who are aware that false teaching abounds and anyone could get swept up into it. One way we do so is through our ordinary discipling of one to another, encouraging each other, as Todd said, to stick with Jesus. And then when we think we might be hearing someone, begin to doubt the character and word of God or even believing things, beginning to go into that mode of disbelief that we would love each other enough to talk with each other about that, to engage each other well. I hope and pray that God will continue to grow in us a non-fearful, non-judgmental, non-authoritarian watchfulness one over the other. Today, our passage gives us a crystal clear vision and job description of the work of a pastor. And since the church, as we talked about a few weeks ago, is the pillar and buttress of the truth, her leaders' lives will either commend that truth or denigrate it. And this is the most personal part of the whole book in which the Apostle Paul talks very candidly to Timothy about his own ministry. So let's listen to it, starting in verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, the, these things meaning what he said thus far in the letter. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. 
have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. These verses instruct us that through training in godliness, good pastors live and lead by the gospel. A good pastor is one who's growing in their own godliness, and then through that gospel growth, will both live and lead by it. And generally speaking, these two paragraphs get at that message first in the first paragraph by talking about the pastor personally, so his own life, and then the second paragraph mainly emphasizing the pastor publicly, so his life and his leadership. Now, before we dive into those two themes, I think we should acknowledge there's, a, there's an elephant in the room. The vast majority of us are not, nor will we ever be, pastors. And so, why would this not have been a good day for you to sleep in or to nap even now? Why care about the character and job description of a pastor? What's that got to do with me? you might be asking. As I've thought about this, many ideas or many reasons why came to mind. Let me give you a small sample of them. There's three reasons why I want to encourage you to lean in rather than check out. First, God's reputation is on the line. God's reputation is on the line. The Apostle Paul knew that Timothy functioning as the pastor of the church of Ephesus, his life and his ministry would either commend God and his word or would lie about God and his word. There is no neutrality. Since the church is the body of Christ, we all, each and every one of us who are believers, are called by God to be his representatives before a watching world. If that's true of every Christian, then how much more is that true of those who hold pastoral office? It is not happenstance that whenever a pastor has a downfall, inevitably, both the pastor and his God take a reputational hit. 
And therefore, these verses are critical for all of us to have a concern and care about. To put it succinctly, if you care about God's reputation, then you must care about the godliness and commitment to the scriptures of your pastors. The two are interwoven together. And furthermore, in a congregational church, so you, you remember that word we read uh, earlier this morning in our statement of faith, what that word means, congregational, in terms of how a church is structured, is that in most things, the body is called to follow the eldership, the leadership of their pastors. But there's a point at which the elders no longer have the authority to make particular decisions, and that responsibility rests on the entire body, not just the pastors. The Scripture talks about that in areas of membership and doctrine, discipline, and who the pastors and deacons are. Therefore, this ultimately rests on you to be having or removing pastors who model or don't model a godly Christian life. A second reason I want to encourage you to care about this text is that what's true of leaders over time will typically become true of us. As unpopular as notions of leadership and authority are today, it remains an indelible fact that who you submit yourself to will be one of the primary factors or forces in what you become. Stay in a church long enough and you will, this is horrifying, begin to look like your pastors. <laughs> the preaching and life of your leaders will inevitably inform your own life and doctrine. That of course can be positive, but it can also be negative. Your pastors can help your walk with God, or they can hinder it. And therefore, this passage is useful because it shows all of us what to look for in pastors and what to expect from them. And many of us will not live the rest of our entire lives right here in Tempe, Arizona, in the surrounding cities. This is a transient place. Many of you at some point will go elsewhere. How do you pick a church? I'd encourage you to not pick a church based on its size, based on if you like the music style, based on the denomination on the sign. You pick a, past, you pick a church based on is it led by godly men committed to the scriptures? And can you see the fruit of that in the people? This passage equips us to think about that. And furthermore, every pastor holds his role temporarily. You could stay here long enough that you might outlast Randy, Todd, Mike, Tad, and me. How will you choose other pastors? It shouldn't be based on if you like their personalities, but rather if they're godly men. I have no intention of going anywhere, but in a sense, I'm only the interim lead pastor. Some other person will hold this role, and it remains 
on you to say yes or no to whoever the church recommends to you. This kind of text can inform you what to look for and how to correct me if in the meantime I wander. These are massively important issues because what's true about the leaders you follow will become true about you. A final reason I'd encourage you to lean in rather than tune out in this text is that salvation is ultimately at stake for both the pastor and the people. If you look at these verses closely, you may notice that both paragraphs end or conclude with an appeal to salvation. That is, verse 10 and verse 16 both express the gravity of what's involved in the pastor's life and leadership. Maybe some examples would help. Imagine the elders of Church on Mill began teaching that some behaviors God rejects. So some behaviors the scriptures teach if you live consistently in this unrepentantly, then you cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. What if the elders began to swap some of those out and put in others? And not only swap some of those out, but begin to actively encourage those behaviors. Well, beloved, that would be to allow yourself to sit under heresy and put your own soul in spiritual peril. That's what Paul's getting at in this appeal to salvation. Or to put it in a different way, another example. Imagine if your elders began preaching that all religions ultimately are basically the same. That God's content with any sincere religious adherence, that if you authentically pursue some spiritual thing, then all paths ultimately lead to the same God. Church, frankly, that would be a more popular message to preach in Tempe, Arizona than the one we hold dear. For this church to teach that, however, would be disastrous because it would be to roll out the red carpet to hell. There is salvation in no one else. Only Christ can save. So in light of these sobering realities, I hope the elephant has now left the building and we can all connect well with these verses. And it might be that you are someone who has not yet submitted yourself to in a formal way, and however that church happens to do it, have not formally submitted yourself to the members and the pastors of a church in a commitment. Perhaps this would be instructive to you today as you consider if this is the kind of place to do that. Think with me first about the pastor personally. The pastor personally, that is this first paragraph. I realize I don't look like it, but I grew up coming of age in my teen years in the 90s. And as a NBA basketball fan, that means I grew up mesmerized by the Chicago Bulls. Their star, of course, was 
Michael Jordan, unquestionably the greatest to ever play the game. And yet, the supporting cast around him was essential to the success that they had, including a rebounder named Dennis Rodman. Rodman was an absolute beast at grabbing the ball. It's incredible. And yet, his personal life was a complete train wreck. Fairly often, I would remember as he would get in some antic off the court, reporters asking fellow players and coaches, what do you think about what Rodman's doing off the court? Is it causing problems on the court? And they would inevitably say, I don't care what he does off the court. All that matters is how good he is on the court. Time revealed the folly of that perspective. Rodman's off-the-court antics ended up ruining his career long before he had passed his prime physically. His personal life was the downfall of his public life. If that's true of something as unimportant as dribbling a little ball and putting it through a hoop, how much more is that true of the church? What a pastor is in private will eventually come out in what they do in public. What pastors are personally eventually trumps who they are publicly. This is why verse six says that good pastors teach the truths of the gospel to the people of God continually and do so in such a way that they're continually being shaped and reformed and corrected and built up by those very words themselves. Like a waiter or waitress sets a feast before you to satisfy your physical hunger. When a church gathers, we gather for a meal in which the pastor's job is to set a spiritual feast before you, one that he's already been nourished on. They can do this only by being continually trained in the richness of the gospel and the doctrine surrounding it themselves. Now, pastor or not, that ought to be true for all of us because we all have a sphere of influence through which we too can do good to others. Consider, for example, parents. Parents, God has tasked you to be the primary disciplers of your children. And that means particularly as they're in the home, that you give them yourself to their spiritual good. So what if a kid burps at the table every now and then if they're hearing the gospel? Meaning you should give them good training in manners. But far more important is give them good training in the master, Jesus Christ. You'll only teach and model the precious truths of the gospel to your children in any sort of consistent way if you yourself are feasting on them. Better than anyone else, little kids, can tell when you're full of it 
and not living what you're saying. That's a wonderful gift from God. I was so often corrected by my children when they were young. Or another example, students and scholars, you are surrounded in your sphere of everyday life by people desperately in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are so many non-Christians around us. What a gift that for a period of time you're rubbing shoulders, rubbing elbows, opening books, having presentations, building relationships with people who you, not, who you may not have opportunity five, ten years from now to be around. Are you paying attention to those moments in which you can share something, even brief, about how good God is? The only way you'll ever notice those and have the courage through which to walk through those scary doors is by being someone continually training and growing in the gospel yourself. That's probably why the end of verse seven states so plainly, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. Every year there's a 4.2 mile race right down the street called Pat's Run. This year it was on April 15th. Imagine on April 14th, the couch potato deciding, I'm gonna do that race tomorrow. Friend, he or she might get out and try, but they're more likely to die. <laughs> Without weeks or even months of training, a race as short as 4.2 miles is simply impossible if there hasn't been prior discipline. A daily getting up, eating more healthy, and doing some walking. And then that leading to a bit of jogging. And then that leading to a full out run. Verse eight says that that kind of physical training has some value. Health matters, but spiritual training is comprehensively better. Why? Well, unlike healthy physical activity, which has a limited shelf life, healthy spiritual activity will endure forever. Pastors who neglect their own growth in godliness will eventually reveal that they've been doing so. They can't keep a lid on ungodliness forever. Eventually, the circumstances of life will so shake and create pressure that that ungodliness will come out. Or they will begin to teach things that aren't actually true. One cannot be in public ultimately what they're not in private. I'm so thankful that the elders I get to serve with here are all godly men who I know discipline themselves to pray to read the scriptures, to confess sin, to walk with God imperfectly, but unhypocritically. Verse eight says about 
men like them, that godliness has value in every way. And that would certainly apply to you as well, Christian. So Christians, is there a way in which you've been training yourself for godliness lately? As you think back over the last month of your walk with Jesus, have you been a couch potato? not training yourself for the race of life? Or have you been giving yourself consistently to the means through which we grow? The word godliness is a churchy word that gets used from time to time, but it might be one of those words sometimes we struggle to understand exactly what it is. Godliness is both an attitude and an action. It's an attitude of awe, of reverence, of adoration toward God. And that attitude then governs and informs one's actions. It's a a personal, it's stoking a personal, continual, disposition of worship in awe of God, and that disposition then by the Spirit shapes how we live. One pastor I read this week puts it this way, the godly person places God at the center of every activity and endeavor. God is in the sleeping and the waking, the eating and the drinking, the coming and the going. The godly person walks with God at home, at work, at church, at school, at play. It is an attitude toward life that David expressed when he said, I have set the Lord always before me. Friend, that kind of disposition to life does not just happen. It's something you gotta work at. That working at it doesn't save you No, the working at it is what Paul calls in Philippians, working out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in you, both to will and to work for your salvation. A Godward gaze takes a long, long, long time to cultivate, and yet it is a precious thing that the Lord would have for each one of us in Christ. We grow in godliness by engaging in the spiritual disciplines humbly and regularly. Disciplines like Bible reading and memorization, fellowship with each other, prayer, serving, and especially responding well to suffering. If you're a follower of Jesus and don't know how to train yourself, I would say, first of all, I've been there. I spent a lot of years as a frustrated Christian, looking around thinking, this seems to work for everybody else but me. If you would say, I don't practically know what to do, then men, I would encourage you, look around. Who is a godly man that you'd say, I'd like to be like him spiritually when I grow up? Ask him if he'd spend a little time with you coaching you in how to discipline yourself for godliness. 
Ladies, who is a sister that you're familiar with who models godliness well? Ask her to meet up, even over something like boba, to give you a little bit of godliness that you might mature in it. This kind of culture of discipling and discipleship is what most of the life of the church is. It's why we don't fill the schedule with church meetings every single day of the week, but rather leave space that in normal life you are sharing the gospel with non-Christians and then building each other up in this gospel. We all bear the responsibility to help each other grow in godliness. But we can't ultimately grow someone for them. They must discipline themselves to grow in Christ. Please pray that your pastors would remain committed to that themselves, not letting the demands of a growing church crowd out the necessity of a growing life. Pray that we would persist. Pray that we would follow verse 10. Pray that we'd never give up in the godliness God so delights in. Pray that our hope would remain in God. That's what verses 6 to 10 are about. Now, moving on, the thrust of verses 11 to 16 has more to do with the public ministry of the pastors. What do they say and what do they do in public? And these Six short verses thunder with ten commands. It is as though Paul unloaded the full clip and showered them with bullets. Commands that they must aim to live by. You might think of these as the the job description, if you will, of a good pastor or a good elder team. The commands are these, command and teach the scriptures, set an example in all areas of life, devote yourself to reading the Bible, to preaching the Bible, to teaching the Bible, to not neglect the teaching gift given in the opportunity of the pastorate, to practice these things, to immerse yourself in them, to guard their life and doctrine and keep at it. This whole passage is flavored with the urgency of the work. While our elder team is far from perfect, and we must keep leaning in to grow, I would commend these brothers to you as people who are aiming to do in private what they do in public. And I would say these are men who sincerely seek to follow these commands. Where you've observed obedience in a way that's blessed you in that regard, I would encourage you to go to one of the pastors and tell them how their public ministry has revealed their private piety and how it's encouraged you in your own walk with Christ. I hope the Lord allows me to share Christ with you for many more years. I have no intention of going anywhere. 
And yet someday someone else will hold the role of lead pastor here. I want to encourage you to settle for nothing else from me or that next man than the faithful ministry of the Word of God. Verse 13 puts it so plainly, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. The order is instructive. There's a reason they're listed in that fashion. Like the priests in Nehemiah 8, or Jesus himself in Luke 4, or Paul in Acts 13. When the people of God get together, one of the main things they do is they hear the Scripture read, and then the minister exhorts and teaches based on what's just been read. That is, sermons must be expository in nature, drawing out the meaning from the passage rather than bringing some idea to the passage and using the text as a platform for one's own ideas. Who cares what Chuck thinks? Let's care what God thinks. The preacher has a God-given authority insofar and only insofar as he says what God says. That's why it's read, then explain, then apply. God alone has the words of life. So whether it's here or elsewhere, listen for pastors to be shaped by the Bible rather than pastors who shape the Bible because they will misshape it. This, beloved, is how we're protected from the slippery slope of false doctrine. We elders regularly thank God in prayer that you are a people who love God's Word and will take both the easy text and the hard text in stride, knowing that everything God says is good and is for our benefit. These verses tell us that through training in godliness, good pastors live by the gospel and they lead by that gospel. In God's kindness, he's given us exactly what to expect. Don't look for charismatic personalities, business savviness, unusual organizational prowess. Look for godly men committed to God's word. And remember, such men are only a shadow. Jesus is the substance. He is the ultimate good shepherd because he's the perfect one who laid down his life for the sheep. Anything helpful we elders do doesn't hold a candle to what Jesus did and does. Think of your pastors as windows through which to see Christ to grow up in Christ. They are not the end. They are merely a means. Jesus is your senior pastor. 
He is your chief shepherd. And so let's mold everything in life around him because, brothers and sisters, he is tending to you even now in your joys, in your sorrows, in your questions, in your doubts, in your disappointments, in your delights. Jesus is tending to you. He is available to you 24-7 because Christ has saved you and is in you and you are in him. Your pastors are meant to point you to him, nothing more, nothing less. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, our prayer is that this passage would reveal to you a nagging sense of a lack of godliness and that that painful insight would be seen as an act of mercy from God. Earlier in this letter of 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. We Christians say the same thing. We don't say, we know Jesus because we're better than you, shape up and act like us, and then maybe someday you might know him too. But rather we say, we are the worst, and yet Christ has saved. Friend, I'm confident there's someone sitting near you who would love to tell you more about this Jesus. We'll be done in just a few minutes. Stick around a few minutes and ask them. Not the person paid to say this stuff, but the ordinary everyday Christian whose life has been changed by Christ. Let them tell you their own story. Let them tell you the story of Christ. They'd love to commend him to you. Church, please pray that the elders would live and lead by the gospel. There's much at stake in that. Let's pray. Before I voice a prayer for us, if you're a follower of Christ and have been a while, then you can likely look back and maybe there are things that you would say, I thank God for this thing from this pastor. Would you spend a moment just praising God? And perhaps as you look back, there are also some ways in which you've been under bad pastoring. And maybe there's something to release to God in that way. Would you take a moment and pray, thanking God for both the good and releasing the bad. God, we thank you that you ultimately in Christ are our perfect shepherd, that you gave your life for us, 
Thank you that in your mercies we've been gathered together into a new family, not because we've earned it, but because you have so sovereignly and mercifully given it. Would you please help us grow in that, this gospel, this gospel that has been given to us in Christ. We thank you that in your mercies, you've also given us pastors, under shepherds who help point us to Jesus. I thank you, Lord, for the blessing that Mike and Tad and Randy and Todd have been as they have pastored me. And I thank you for the way in which they so godly and faithfully give themselves to what we've talked about today. We pray in your mercies this church would always have men like them. In the coming days, we ask that you'd help each of us to, in ways we know we ought, give ourselves to a training, a discipline, a growth in godliness. Help us to help each other in that way. We look to you as our creator and our recreator, and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.